0: Welcome to Podcastica Patristica. I'm your host, Tyler Stanley. This episode is about the arch-heretic Nestorius. If you haven't already, I highly encourage you to listen to the previous episode on Cyril of Alexandria, because a lot of the terms and concepts we discuss in this episode are explained more clearly in the previous one. If you'd like to support the work I do financially, you can go to patreon.com slash podcastica patristica. I've got bonus episodes for patrons, including the most recent episode on early Christian baptismal practices. In it, I address those most controversial questions about baptism. Are we supposed to sprinkle or to dunk? And what about infants? Thanks to those of you who already support the show. Hopefully my take on baptism won't drive you to withdraw your donations. Now, on to this episode. In late December of the year 427, the Bishop of Constantinople, Sicinius, died after less than two years in the position. Naturally, the vacuum created by the vacancy of such a powerful position led to factions forming around different candidates. The rivalry proved to be so contentious that the emperor, Theodosius II, decided to bring in an outsider by the name of Nestorius. Like most heretics of the patristic era, we know very little about the life of Nestorius. He was born near Germanicia in northern Syria, possibly around 381, and eventually found himself receiving an education in Antioch, possibly under the great Antiochene theologian Theodore of Mopsuestia. He eventually became a monk in the monastery of Eupreprius, just outside the city walls. He was an eloquent and charismatic speaker, a natural leader, just the sort of man they needed in the capital. Nestorius was very likely recommended to the emperor by his close friend and the Archbishop of Antioch, known commonly as John of Antioch. He will come up later. On April 10th, 428, Nestorius was ordained as the Archbishop of the Imperial See. Straightaway, Nestorius revealed his ambitions and zeal for a pure church. At his ordination, he told the emperor, Give me, my prince, the earth purged of heretics, and I will give you heaven as a recompense. Assist me in destroying the heretics, and I will assist you in vanquishing the Persians. See, in 421, Theodosius had declared war on the Sassanid Persian Empire after they had begun persecuting Christians for destroying their Zoroastrian temples. Theodosius won a few battles, but in 422 they declared peace. I'm not sure what Nestorius thought he could do to help conquer the neighboring empire, but Theodosius and the crowds liked what they heard. Though, according to Socrates, quote, "...those who were skillful in predicating a man's character from his expressions did not fail to detect his levity of mind and violent and vainglorious temperament. And as much as he had burst forth into such vehemence without being able to contain himself for even the shortest space of time, and to use the proverbial phrase before he had tasted the water of the city, showed himself a furious persecutor. Five days later, Nestorius went to take over a church occupied by Arians in the city. They set fire to the church rather than turn it over, causing several nearby buildings to catch fire. After this, both the Arians and the Orthodox Christians began calling him the Incendiary, or as one modern scholar put it, Torchy. He was apparently relentless in putting down any hint of dissent from his own viewpoint. He persecuted the Novationists, the same group Cyril persecuted shortly after assuming his office in Alexandria, as well as a group called the Corto Decimans, a group of Christians who observed Easter on the day of the Jewish Passover. The date of Easter was a major controversy, probably the most important topic of discussion at the Council of Nicaea, but that gets overshadowed by the Arian controversy. Nestorius' ferocity apparently warranted several admonitions from the emperor himself. It's hard to know how much of this would have actually been seen as disruptive. At his inauguration, the crowds were happy to hear his intent to destroy the heretics and the Persians. If he were any other Orthodox bishop, I wonder if his violent actions here would be celebrated by Socrates and those who would later write his story. In addition to the unorthodox sects, Nestorius made enemies with the local monks. Somewhat ironically, one of his biggest opponents early on was a monk by the name of Hypatius, remember the controversy Cyril had with the woman named Hypatia. The monk Hypatius was an advisor to the emperor's sister, Pulcheria. Nestorius attempted to force the monks to remain cloistered and to completely refrain from public affairs. Perhaps it was an honest theological position on the role of monks. He had, after all, been a monk in Antioch. Maybe this was his own ascetic practice, and he expected the monks under his jurisdiction to do the same. Or maybe it was a political maneuver, an attempt to assert his own dominance. I really don't know. But speaking of Pulcheria, she's actually an important figure in Nestorius' story. Her mother was Eudoxia, wife of Emperor Arcadius. If you listen to the patron episode on the Synod of the Oak, you'll recall that she was basically running the show for Arcadius. Like her mother, Pulcheria was headstrong and intimately involved in the affairs of the church. In fact, she, along with her two sisters, Arcadia and Marina, had made a vow of chastity, and was a consecrated virgin under the archbishop Atticus, who took over as archbishop after Chrysostom was ousted. Vows of chastity were closely associated with the chastity of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Bishop Atticus, in a homily on Mary, said, "...and you also women, you who have been renewed in Christ, who have cast off every stain of sin and have partaken of blessing in the Most Holy Mary, you also may receive him in the womb of faith, the one who was born today of the Virgin. For even the Blessed Virgin Mary first opened herself through faith, and not until she had made her body worthy of the kingdom did she receive the King of the Universe in her womb. Atticus would likely have said something similar at the consecration of the princesses. Nestorius had removed the portrait of Pulcheria from the cathedral, as well as the robe she donated to cover the altar. What's more, he denied her entry into the cathedral to take the Eucharist with the bishops and the emperor, as she was apparently accustomed to. He told her that no woman could enter, and she responded, Why? Have I not given birth to God? To which Nestorius replied, No, you have given birth to Satan. We've seen before with Tertullian that a common and terribly misogynistic view of women was that they are daughters of Eve, through whom sin entered the world. Nestorius was telling Pulcheria, you are no daughter of Mary, you are a daughter of Eve. And there are some much later reports that Nestorius explicitly accused her of breaking her vows, but I'm not really sure what to make of it. We do have an account of things from Nestorius after everything went down, and he talks about Pulcheria referring to her as a virgin and a maiden. Some modern scholars all but say Nestorius slut-shamed her, but I don't quite see that. So when the controversy surrounding the Theotokos arises, Pulcheria is not to be found on Nestorius's side. It's entirely likely that she viewed his position not only as an affront to Mary, but to her, personally. Before we get to all that, I have to do that thing where I look at all the evidence that Nestorius was a bad guy and tell you that things are actually more complicated. Bet you never saw that coming. Socrates describes him as a narcissistic, violence-prone misogynist. Basically, the ancient version of Mark Driscoll. After all, in his inaugural speech, he talked about conquering Persia and putting down heretics, and then he started persecuting Arians. He blocked women from the sanctuary during Eucharist for the bishops and emperor, and seemingly did everything he could to offend Pulcheria, for no intelligible reason other than that she was a woman. I don't have any nuanced discussion for his treatment of women, other than the fact that he was an ancient man in a powerful position. Of course, his views on women were atrocious. It's entirely possible that he was ill-tempered, but the evidence against him is a bit flimsy. Socrates first points out that line from his inaugural speech, If you help me destroy the heretics, I'll help you destroy the Persians. And there's a footnote in one of the books or papers I read while researching this episode, and I lost it. I'm not exaggerating when I say that I spent hours over several days trying to find it. That footnote basically says that this sort of rhetoric is actually pretty common, especially for inaugural speeches. It gave a couple references to other bishops doing the same sort of thing. A paper that I can actually remember is J.A. McGuckin's Nestorius and the Political Factions of 5th Century Byzantium, McGuckin explains that when Nestorius comes to the capital, the Arian church has been nearly eradicated. They're hanging on by a nail. A solitary sanctuary in the capital city seems to hardly be a threat. Why such an immediate display of intolerance towards this seemingly inconsequential group? The answer to that lies in why the group was allowed to continue at all. This is a long time after the Arian controversies. Why is there an Arian church in the capital city? It turns out, a large contingent of barbarian soldiers, Gothic mercenaries, had been hired to protect the capital city. Gothic Christianity had apparently, even to this time, been thoroughly Arian. And so Nestorius' predecessor allowed them some tolerance. They were protecting the city, after all. Nestorius was not willing to take the risk of an insurrection of heretics, especially while threats continued at the northern border and in Africa down south. And it's odd that Nestorius gets called the incendiary or torchy due to the affair with the Aryan church, because we're explicitly told that the Arians themselves are the ones who burned the church. Yet another factor that could have had Nestorius on edge is the recent events near the Hellespont. The bishop in that region, named Antony, had been purging the church of Macedonians. In this context, that doesn't refer to people who are from Macedonia, but to the followers of a man named Macedonius, who taught a heresy known as Pneumatomachianism. That's a mouthful. Basically, they were accused of being Arians, but about the Holy Spirit. That is, they didn't believe the Holy Spirit was fully God, hence the name pneumatomachii, which literally means those who battle against the Spirit. They were lumped in with Arians. Anyway, Antony had been persecuting the Macedonians, these Arian sympathizers, so the Macedonians assassinated Antony. McGuckin suggests that Nestorius' political theology entailed the belief that God might hand over the empire to their enemies if the people were not faithful, just as God had done with the Israelites in the past. With the Macedonians getting brave and the Arians right there in the center of the empire, Nestorius thought this threat was a threat not only to the church, but to national security. Looking back on Nestorius's downfall, It seems like he was simply unskilled at the political side of things. In his quest to purify the capital, he just ended up burning bridges with people who may otherwise have been advocates for him against Cyril. He was just a monk from Antioch. It's hardly surprising that he struggled to manage what was functionally the most powerful bishopric in the entire Christian world. (laughs) So, what about the fight with Cyril, the Christological Controversy? Nestorius had brought with him from Antioch a trusted friend, a presbyter named Anastasius. One day, he let Anastasius preach. In the middle of the sermon, he claimed, Let no one call Mary Theotokos, for Mary was but a woman and it is impossible that God should be born of a woman." Naturally, this caused a big controversy. The question was put to Nestorius what he had to say on it, and he came out to defend Anastasius, agreeing with him that it is inappropriate to call Mary Theotokos without qualification. To the crowd, full of both laity and clergy, it sounded like the teaching of the heretic Paul of Samosata, or Photinus, some sort of adoptionism, or a denial of Christ's deity altogether. Thus, the Christological controversy began. Nestorius and Anastasius' concern for emphasizing both the humanity and the divinity of Christ was a feature of the Antiochene tradition they had both come from. We've talked a little bit about this before, and we've actually made this mistake before in this podcast, but the Antiochene versus Alexandrian traditions weren't really as much of a divide as scholars previously thought. It's moments like this, where real differences do pop up, that seem to reinforce that theory. Here, the Alexandrians seem more concerned about the unity and oneness, and the Antiochene seem more concerned with the, the both-and aspect of Christ's humanity and divinity. Really, they were both concerned with both things. The difference in their traditions is what they emphasized and how they emphasized it. Nestorius and his Antiochene colleagues were really not saying anything new. They were in large part reiterating what they had learned in Antioch. Much of it comes from Nestorius' teacher, Theodore of Mopsuestia. And indeed, back in Antioch, Nestorius had the support of its bishop, John. After the controversy first broke, Nestorius began a series of lectures to try to explain his position. In one lecture, he said, quote, That God has passed through from the Virgin as Christotokos, I am taught by the divine scriptures. But that God was born from her, I have not been taught anywhere. He'd say, look, the term is not in scripture, and it's not in the Nicene Creed, why do we have to use this term? He also claimed that earlier church fathers had never taught this term, but that's easily disprovable. This is probably why Socrates called him illiterate. Like, dude, everyone called her Theotokos. One of Nestorius' big influences was Gregory of Nazianzus, And that guy literally said, quote, If anyone denies that St. Mary is Theotokos, he is far from God. So Cyril of Alexandria gets involved, and both of the archbishops begin their politicking, trying to get allegiance from both the Bishop of Rome and from the Emperor himself. I gave a brief rundown of the events in the last episode on Cyril, but I want to focus in on one of the most important events, the Council of Ephesus, known by Cyril's supporters as the Third Ecumenical Council, known by Nestorius' supporters as Cyril's False Synod. (laughs) The controversy had been raging for well over a year, In late 430, the summons for an ecumenical council was sent out. It was to take place about six months later, on June 7th in 431, in the city of Ephesus. Cyril came prepared. He brought with him a contingence of no less than 50 presbyters and monks. Nestorius arrived with only 16. Most of Nestorius' supporters were traveling in from the east, led by his dear friend John of Antioch. By the time June 7th rolled around, the Easterners were nowhere to be found. The next Friday, the Bishop of Jerusalem, Juvenal, came with sixteen bishops from the region of Palestine. Still no word from John and the Antiochians. It was undoubtedly tense. I have to wonder whether these days went by silently, like that moment of quiet before two gunslingers draw their pistols in a duel, or was it raucous and rowdy? dozens of bishops and monks getting in bar fights every night. Whatever the tone, each day made things worse for Nestorius, and some of that was his own fault. Nestorius was stubborn, and not always careful in the way he handled things. He would unequivocally claim that Jesus is God incarnate, but at the same time he would say things like, We can't say that the baby being birthed by Mary or sucking at her breast is God. God can't be spoken of as an infant. He lost some supporters because of that kind of talk. I'm sure a lot of his friends were like, Dude, you gotta shut your mouth if you know what's good for you. Finally, on the 21st of June, a full two weeks after the council was supposed to start, the council received a letter from John. He related to them that the caravan had faced difficulties along the way, but expected to be in Ephesus within five or six days. If I'm late, he said, then you can start without me. Now, John clearly meant, if I'm not there after six days, then start without me. But Cyril, ever the schemer, thought, well, John, you're already late and called for the court to convene immediately the next morning. Sixty-eight bishops signed a letter urging Cyril to wait for the Easterners. The imperial officer in charge of the proceedings tried to stop them, but Cyril would have none of it. This was his chance to get the Antiochene out. He summoned the accused heretic to court, but Nestorius refused. Three times he was summoned, and three times he refused saying that he was happy to attend as soon as the entire council was ready. Cyril went ahead with the proceedings anyway. With a room full of bishops on Cyril's side and no Nestorius to defend himself, the group of 197 bishops ultimately unanimously condemned him. John of Antioch finally arrived on June 26th, just as he said he would he was predictably furious with Cyril, and decided to hold his own council. He and the bishops he brought with him formally condemned Cyril for Apollinarianism and Arianism, among other things. When Emperor Theodosius got word of what had happened, he attempted to nullify the proceedings of both parties and reconvene with both groups present. But the bishops refused. The damage was done. Cyril and Nestorius were both arrested. In September, seven bishops from each side were selected and taken to appear in front of the emperor himself, where they would present their cases and resolve the matter. The only real outcome of this meeting was that the eastern bishops accepted the term Theotokos. Nestorius later accused Cyril of bribing the emperor at this time in order to have things go his way. Either way, the wind was out of Nestorius's sails. He requested to return to his monastery in Antioch and left in shame. And Cyril returned to Alexandria to a great celebration. A new bishop, Maximian, took over Nestorius' place as the archbishop of Constantinople. We all know Cyril, however. He was not ready to let things go. Although he successfully pushed Nestorius out and convinced the Easterners to accept the Theotokos, it wasn't quite on the terms he had hoped. He had tarnished his relationship with the emperor. In his zeal to condemn Nestorius before the council at Ephesus, he had written a series of statements against Nestorius, known as the Twelve Chapters, or the Twelve Anathemas. These were unnecessarily harsh and unreasonable. They demanded conformity to doctrines that had not been agreed upon by a council, and they were the basis for the Easterners' condemnation of him. So the emperor demanded that John of Antioch and Cyril come to an agreement on the matter. Cyril feared that if he did not find some way to compromise, the Council of Ephesus would be overthrown entirely, and Nestorius may even be brought back to Constantinople. Now, a cold war between Antioch and Alexandria. Each bishop recognized the need for careful reflection and response to whatever came next. The emperor sent a delegation to Antioch to receive their statement. John and the Antiochians wrote a letter to Cyril stating that they upheld the council of Nicaea as interpreted by Athanasius with no chapters or letters added. That means they rejected Cyril's writings. Cyril had a decision to make. Either he could retract his twelve chapters against Nestorius and make peace, or he could continue the fight. Finally, desiring peace, he told the Easterners that he too accepted Nicaea without any additions, not even the twelve chapters. And so the negotiations for peace began. It took time for a new consensus to emerge, and it came with a difficult decision for John of Antioch as well. John would have to betray his old friend and condemn Nestorius as a heretic. From these negotiations, a document called the Formula of Reunion was drafted. It reads, quote, We confess, then, our Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, perfect God and perfect man, of a rational soul and body, begotten before all ages from the Father in his Godhead, the same in the last days for us and for our salvation. Born of Mary the Virgin, according to his humanity, one and the same, consubstantial with the Father in Godhead, and consubstantial with us in humanity, for a union of two natures took place. Therefore we confess one Christ, one Son, one Lord. According to this understanding of the unconfused union, we confess the Holy Virgin to be the mother of God, because God the Word took flesh and became man, and from His very conception united to Himself the temple He took from her. As to the evangelical and apostolic expressions about the Lord, we know that theologians treat some in common as of one person and distinguish others as of two natures, and interpret the God-befitting ones in connection with the Godhead of Christ, and the lowly ones with his humanity. That last part reflects a doctrine known in Latin as the communicatio idiomatum. In English, that is the communication of properties. Basically, it's how we speak of Christ having these two natures, how his humanity can do divine things. It's how we can say, on the one hand, theologically speaking, God cannot die. God is immortal. But Christologically speaking, we can say God did die. Theologically, we can say God is unchangeable. But Christologically, we can say God did change. Because the communication of properties between the divinity and the humanity of Christ goes both ways. In his humanity, Jesus could perform divine miracles. Even in his divinity, Jesus could endure the realities of human existence. Eventually, in 435, 435, Nestorius would be exiled to Petra in Edomia, and then again he would be exiled to Upper Egypt, where he would live out the end of his days. Nestorius outlived Cyril, even living through the Council of Chalcedon, which would, to a certain extent, conclude the controversies that this little monk from Antioch had begun. So what did Nestorius actually believe? Socrates takes a nuanced view. Nestorius was not regurgitating heresy, as many were claiming. Having myself perused the writings of Nestorius, he says, I have found him an unlearned man, and shall candidly express the conviction of my own mind concerning him. And as in entire freedom from personal antipathies, I have already alluded to his faults. I shall in like manner be unbiased by the criminations of his adversaries, to derogate from his merits." I cannot then concede that he was either a follower of Paul of Samosata or of Fatinus or that he denied the divinity of Christ, but he seemed scared at the term Theotokos, as though it were some terrible phantom. The fact is, The causeless alarm he manifested on this subject just exposed his extreme ignorance, for being a man of natural fluency as a speaker, he was considered well-educated, but in reality, he was disgracefully illiterate. In fact, he condemned the drudgery of an accurate examination of the ancient expositors, and puffed up with his readiness of expression, he did not give his attention to the ancients, but thought himself the greatest of all. In short, Socrates was saying, Nestorius isn't so much trying to teach heresy, he's just stupid. I mentioned in the last episode that modern scholars take a much more sympathetic view of Nestorius, but even they are baffled by him. Milton Anastos, in a paper called Nestorius Was Orthodox, writes a hilarious defense of him. Quote, My own thesis is that Nestorius was not only thoroughly and indubitably orthodox, but also, as in many respects, the profoundest and most brilliant theologian of the 5th century. It must be admitted that his style is often turgid and confusing. The repetitiousness of his great theological treatise, The Bazaar of Heraclides, is frustrating, wearisome, and painful. It would have been vastly more effective if some expert rhetorician had pruned it of tautology, eliminated contradictions, added the necessary logical definitions, which Nestorius unhappily eschewed, and reduced its length by half or three quarters. Still, even in a morass of verbiage, the bazaar is a document that merits careful consideration. So, Socrates calls him arrogant and stupid. Anastos calls him brilliant, but convoluted and confusing but what did he actually think about Mary, Jesus, divinity, humanity? In the episode on Cyril, I focus more on the historical events surrounding this controversy, and this one I want to dive into Nestorius' theology. What was he really trying to say? Remember, he believed that Cyril's idea, the hypostatic union, the union of two natures, logically could only lead to heresy. He couldn't get on board with this because either, one, the nature of God would completely overpower the nature of humanity and consume it, or two, they would be mixed into a third thing, a tertium quid in Latin. Naturally, we don't have a ton of Nestorius's writings. They were burned after his condemnation. But later in his life, he did write a fuller defense of his theology. That work mentioned by Milton Anastos, that I quoted above, it's called The Bazaar of Heraclides, often called The Book of Heraclides. There's some debate over whether it was really written by Nestorius, but my impression is that it's generally accepted as authentic. He likely would have written it in Greek, but the only version that survives is a Syriac translation. The title should be The Book or Treatise of Heraclides, but there was a mistranslation and for some reason it stuck so now it's called the Bazaar of Heraclides. Heraclides was apparently a highly respected man, and Nestorius used his name as a pseudonym to prevent the book from being destroyed. Once you actually start reading, there is no attempt to hide the fact that the book is by Nestorius. It was just an intentionally misleading title. Pretty much every scholar who discusses the Bazaar makes mention of how difficult it is to read. It's meandering, repetitive, full of what seem to be logical inconsistencies, and it even switches between genre out of nowhere. It starts as a dialogue between Nestorius and someone called Sophronius, kind of like in the style of Plato's dialogues, but then it just turns into protracted prose, Nestorius rambling out his thoughts. Anastos is incredibly helpful in trying to condense and clarify what Nestorius was trying to do. And if Anastos is right, then I think Nestorius is actually quite brilliant. Firstly, and I think most scholars will point this out, Nestorius never actually objects to the term Theotokos. He repeatedly says that he accepts the word, only if we give it proper qualifications. Moreover, he unambiguously denies that he believes that there are two sons, or lords, or Christs. According to Anastos, if you look only at the things Nestorius wrote for himself, he never really even claimed that there were two prosopa or persons, in Christ, as his enemies claim. Listen to the last episode on Cyril, where I get more into detail on that. Nestorius writes, quote, We say not one and another, for there is one prosopon person, of both natures. There are numerous times where Nestorius makes this clear. There is one single prosopa, one person. But, and this is why all the scholars, ancient and modern, will say that Nestorius is either stupid, confused, or just not careful in his explanation. He does occasionally make mention of two persons, divine and human, and of a union of persons. Anastos says that Nestorius is using prosopa in two different technical ways. Sometimes he uses it the way you and I might think of it. A person is the entirety of their being. A person has a mind, body, and soul. This is how Cyril and the Westerners were using it. But there's another use of the term prosupa. It draws on the more literal meaning of the Greek word. The original meaning of prosupa is face, and it carries the idea of attributes, characteristics, the things you can see about a person or thing, the things that make it recognizable. Let's look closely at what Nestorius is doing here. He doesn't like Cyril's formula because to him it's illogical, and it can only lead to heresy. If you say that the union happens on the level of nature, as Cyril did, then either Jesus isn't fully human, or he isn't fully God, or he's a tertium quid, a third thing entirely. Nestorius says that the union has to happen on the level of the prosopa, the person, But, you'll argue, Nestorius has the same problem, right? If you mix their personhood, their prosopa, then you've done the same thing. You've created something new. Well, that's only a problem if you're thinking of person in the wrong way. You're thinking of person as, like, the entire being. Mind, body, soul, and all that. It's not a problem if prosopa is used in that other, more ancient way. Referring to attributes or characteristics, the things that make the person recognizable. So, what makes a human recognizable as a human? It's their physical body. It has certain distinct features that we look at and we know that thing is a human and not an elephant or an apple. But what is God's prosopa? What are the things? that make God recognizable. God is invisible. How are we supposed to recognize the divine? It is by the divine name. The name that is above every name. The name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So the prosopon of the divine nature, Nestorius says, is the Logos himself. So there is a union of these persons, without damage to either one. The divine maintains complete divinity, and the human maintains complete humanity in a single person. Two persons, characteristics, attributes, in one person, the entirety of the being. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and bears the name above all names, recognizable as human And recognizable as divine. To me, that is incredibly beautiful and compelling, if it is what Nestorius is doing. Not everyone is convinced. Plenty of scholars and theologians, both ancient and modern, have found Nestorius completely incapable of providing a logical framework for his position. But I think it's important to see that even if Nestorius couldn't provide a clear logical framework for his position, He still rejected pretty much all of the things heretical that he was accused of teaching. Remember, as I quoted earlier, Anastos claims that Nestorius was thoroughly and indubitably orthodox. He doesn't simply mean I like the things Nestorius says, he means this technically. Nestorius is an orthodox, Chalcedonian Christian. Let's look again at the Chalcedonian definition, that is, the later council that attempted to settle this whole debate once and for all. Quote, Born of Mary the Virgin Theotokos, as to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the difference of the natures being in no way removed because of the union but rather the properties of each nature being preserved, and both occurring into one person and one hypostasis, not as though he was parted or divided into two persons, but one and the self-same Son and only begotten God, Word, Lord, Jesus Christ. Well, there's another term that makes all of this confusing, and that's the term hypostasis. Remember, Cyril is the one who came up with the idea of the hypostatic union, the union of Christ's two natures. During the Arian controversies years before, hypostasis was used to mean nature. Later, it takes on the meaning of person. But during the 5th century, the meaning was not so consistent. So when Nestorius speaks of two hypostases, Cyril thinks he's speaking of two persons, when in fact, he's using it in the older way, and is in fact affirming what Cyril believes, two natures. So again, Nestorius repeatedly and explicitly states that he believes in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. He believes in the two natures. Another thing to remember, Cyril did not say Christ was in two natures, as the Chalcedonian definition says. He said, out of two natures. And you'll remember from the last episode, there was a contingent of Cyril's own followers who rejected Chalcedon precisely because it did not use Cyril's formula there. They thought it was a compromise with Nestorius, and technically, that's kind of true. It used Nestorius's formula, in two natures. So Nestorius could look at the Chalcedonian definition and affirm the Theotokos as he had always done. He could affirm that Christ is in two natures. He could even affirm the hypostatic union, as long as we understand that it was a union of persons, not of natures. McGuckin summarizes the problem with Nestorius this way, Quote, The Christological scheme which Nestorius proposed is complicated, at times highly obscure, and always obsessively demanding of semantic exactness in the formularies the faithful may or may not hold about Christ. To this extent, it was an intellectual's Christology, Unable to tap the deep springs of popular imagination and mysticism on which Cyril was able to draw. Nestorius occupied a position which was difficult to state, but only too easy to misunderstand, and equally easy to misinterpret in the most damaging ways. The way he preferred to debate, with heavy use of sarcastic reductio ad absurdum, did nothing to endear him to his intellectual opponents. His unquestioning belief in the all-sufficing brilliance of his own mind and his arrogance to those he regarded as his inferiors could be said to be the direct causes of his downfall, politically as well as doctrinally. He had clearly raised some extremely important issues in his teaching. He exposed the problems and aspects of Christology that the 5th century church urgently needed to address. His own exposition had so many difficulties in it that it was inevitably misheard, and rejected because it was misheard. But this is not the whole matter, and one ought to be wary of those studies which hail him as a misunderstood genius who has much to offer contemporary theology? Even with the most sympathetic and patient of exegesis, which he did not receive in antiquity, needless to say, the fact still remains that, time and again, one senses that he is deliberately arguing around central issues instead of facing them plainly." McGuckin's criticisms here are probably mostly fair, though he makes zero attempt to lay out an objective assessment of Nestorius in the rest of his work. He really doesn't care for Nestorius, and he gets pretty cheeky about it, so take that for what it's worth. But think of it like this. I'm hugely oversimplifying things, but Nestorius was basically in a logical trap by Cyril and the others. They could simply say, Mary is the mother of Jesus. Jesus is God. Therefore, Mary is the mother of God. Their entire argument wrapped up in one easy syllogism. How does Nestorius respond to that? He has no choice but to get... Pedantic. Well, actually, yes, Mary is the mother of Jesus, and yes, Jesus is God. But technically, McGuckin's comments on Nestorius's demands for semantic exactness are actually pretty funny. Nestorius apparently really liked the word acribos, which can be translated something like "strictly speaking" or "technically." So Nestorius was the Neil deGrasse Tyson of theology actually, Jesus was more than just a human, so we can't just say anthropotokos, because that is incomplete. Or, strictly speaking, yes, Jesus was God, but God can't be born, so it's not quite accurate to say theotokos. And everyone else is just like, sir, this is a Wendy's. He doesn't cite any sources for this, but McGuckin also says that Nestorius's opponents mocked him and tried to reveal the problems with his arguments by reducing his arguments to the syllogism, if Mary is not, strictly speaking, the mother of God, then her son is not, strictly speaking, God. And Nestorius is trapped, and he looks like a dum-dum. Again... Nestorius would just have to double down into defining terms and trying to explain in himself. If you pay attention to American politics, you'll know that this is exactly how Donald Trump quote-unquote wins debates. People watch politics for sport. Nobody actually cares about policy. It's all about the consumer experience, and Trump knows that. So instead of being a nerd and explaining policy, he just says things like, the world just got ten feet taller, or when he's asked to defend his decisions, he just says, "You're fake news," and the audience eats it up. Don't misunderstand my point. I'm not saying that Cyril is like Donald Trump. Cyril could and actually did articulate things. The point I'm making is that when it comes to complex philosophical, theological, or political issues. People who are not experts, or who already know what side they like, tend to go with the thing that's easier to understand. Everybody understands what a wall is, and, at least theoretically, why someone might want to build one on the border. It's an easy sell when the audience doesn't have time, or interest, or education to understand the intricacies of creating a legal apparatus to maintain international borders. Trump just has to say, bad people are coming, and we gotta stop them from coming. The Democrats want to abolish the border, and let the criminals come in and do bad stuff. And everyone cheers him on, because they don't actually know the statistics, or intricate details of the matter. His opponent has to say, strictly speaking, a wall is financially infeasible, and moreover, people crossing the borders are overwhelmingly good people who just want to escape harsh conditions which is strictly speaking legal for them to do. And technically, more so-called illegal immigrants are people who overstay their legally obtained visa than people crossing illegally. And just like you just did, people get bored and tune out. It's not necessarily a bad thing to be able to succinctly state your argument. It can be very helpful. Sometimes it's good to trap your opponents in logical corners. Maybe a good example is Black lives matter. That is a really good, simple statement that makes the point. When we say black lives matter, we force our opponents to make a decision. Are you gonna say black lives don't matter? Or if you say all lives matter, why won't you specifically say that the black ones do? And the people who refuse to say black lives matter are forced to explain themselves and they look stupid in the process. Same thing with Antifa or anti-fascist action. If you say you're anti-antifa, there's a shorter way to say anti-antifa. It's called fascist. I'm off topic now, aren't I? I've gotten into the realm of politics, and that's dangerous. You didn't come here for politics, you came here for Christian theology, and Christian theology has nothing to do with politics. Right? 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 The point is, Nestorius had the problem that his position could not be easily understood or explained, least of all by Nestorius himself. To this day, people with PhDs read Nestorius' stuff, and most can't make out heads or tails. And those who supposedly can understand it still argue over what he was actually saying, and whether it was logically consistent. Maybe he was just an arrogant fool with a big mouth, like Socrates thought. Or maybe he's like the Heidegger of Christology, the brilliant thinker that only a few people can understand. Cyril won, in small part, because what he said was digestible. If Mary is the mother of Jesus, and if Jesus is God then Mary is the mother of God. This isn't the sole reason Cyril won, and my non-expert opinion I think has more to do with the fact that Cyril was an expert politician vying for political power, and Nestorius really sucked at politics, despite all his efforts. There is a new patron-only episode of Podcastica Patristica available now on the early Christian practices of baptism. If you want to hear my spicy takes, go to patreon.com slash podcastica patristica to find out how you can listen to that and other bonus episodes. In the words of Barnabas, farewell, children of love and peace. May the Lord of glory and all grace be with your spirit. Amen.